There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Kimberly Tent, an author and retired Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable. Kimberly lives in the beautiful Kootenai Mountains of Southern British Columbia with her childhood sweetheart of 37 years. Kim has written books and articles in a variety of genres, but we're going to be talking about post-traumatic stress and three of her books, Parts of Me, Scattered Little Parts, and her latest book being released later this week, Some of Parts. Kimberly has three amazing children and three grandchildren who have all been extremely supportive throughout her own journey with a post-traumatic stress injury. Her mission is to continue spreading awareness of post-traumatic stress through her own experience as a police officer and provide hope and support to fellow first responders who are still suffering in silence. Kimberly Tent, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Yeah. It's nice to uh, be joining you uh, this morning here. Thanks for being here. And yes, we were just talking before the show how cold it is. Again, just tell our listeners how cold it is in the Kootenai Mountains. Oh, we're in the minus 20s here today. <laughs> and uh, we, well, in totality, we have a few feet of snow, uh, which is normal for this time of year up here. So did you grow up in the Kootenai Mountains? And what was your childhood like? No, I didn't grow up uh, here. My mom's side of the family did, though. And uh, when we were growing up, we spent a lot of time uh, running around the Platzel and Kimberley and uh, Cranbrook visiting relatives. And I have fond memories of running around the Platzel when I was probably six or seven even. And um, yeah, I just knew that when I retired, I was going to retire here. We're going to talk a lot about your career, first responders and post-traumatic stress. But first, I want to focus on something different and a very important aspect of your life. You want to be not just a good mom, but the absolute best mom. And like many best moms, you ended up putting yourself last. You know, we're always taught to sacrifice for others, but a lot of people just aren't wired to do that. For those of us who aren't moms, what does putting yourself last do to a mom physically, mentally, and emotionally? Uh, first of all, truth. Um, best moms always seem to sacrifice for our kids. <laughs> um, I want to, I just want to clarify something. Um, when I say a best mom, I mean that not a perfect mom, but uh, not your neighborhood uh, mom um, and not to be better than any moms around you uh, or me, I should say. Um, but I just mean being the best mom that you can be in the circumstance you're in, in the time of life that you're at. And yeah, that's a best mom. Um, I, I just think that like when a mom's like we spend 20 plus years running around, uh, giving, 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 giving to our families and our kids, uh, to our husbands. Um, but you know, mainly towards the kids and, um, we, we start losing ourselves in the whole totality of it. Like, where am I in the whole chaos? Um, have you seen women's purses? 
They're not purses. No, we have not. suitcases and we have suitcases for a reason. Um, uh, we have everything in there we need just in case. You know, our brains are wired that way and women understand each other. Moms understand each other and why we do that uh, just in case we need something. You know, we spend days on end, you know, dropping off our kid to hockey practice, the other one to piano lessons. We're letting the dog go. We're doing laundry, getting all the meals done. And you know what? I have to be at work at nine as well. And, uh, you know, I have to phone hubby and make sure he remembers about, you know, parents at his dinner place at seven at their place. And, um, yeah, we lose, we lose ourselves, um, in the whole thing. And, you know, the end result is, um, you know, and I, I know I may joke about it, but it is, there's some truth in it is that men, men think moms like us, we're crazy. And, uh, maybe we are in some way, but, uh, um, but we do the jobs of 10 people and it's from giving. I was laughing at your comment about the, uh, the suitcase, I'm sorry, the, the, the purse size, when my, when my wife and I travel, I think her purse is bigger than her carry-on suitcase. And so just totally get case. that. Exactly. Just in case. Like if you ask her anything that she has in there, she has it. Oh, that I know. <laughs> that I know. It's just like there's no hole in there. Just magic things just keep coming out. Exactly. So was your decision to put yourself last a result of what your parents taught you about parenting? Or was it a decision you made on your own? I think it's actually a bit of both. Um, you know, I think as children, we all grow up um, and we retain uh, both the positive and negative um, aspects of parenting from each one of our parents. Um, my mother, I parented, my style was a lot like my mother parented for years and years and years. She was a giver. She sacrificed for us and she still does. And she's 74. Um you know, I think back and she missed out on a whole lot of things that could have, you know, made her life better or her well-being better. And she sacrificed that for us. And I think at a point, you know, I came to um, that I grew into my own uh, parenting style, my own mothering style. And uh, I learned to say no, uh, for example. And I'm not afraid to say no nowadays. Um, and I learned that one on my own. How should a mom measure her success as a parent? And does that measurement change as the kids get older? Oof. I, this may sound odd, but I don't think there is a measure. I don't, I don't think we can measure it. Um, I guess I, I guess I used to in a way, but I feel like it lends to feeling inferior uh, you know, to other mothers, our friends, our family, you know, other mothers. And um, I just feel like we lose out. And the other thing is, um, you may not agree with me, anyone may not agree with me, but I feel like measurement needs to have an end. Like how you measure uh, something without an end and mothering is ongoing for life. Um, so, I mean, I just want my kids to be happy and if they're happy, I'm happy. Um, I don't know. I guess there's lots of uh, time for measuring when I'm gone. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I think of, you know, I'll call it success for lack of a better word is really just providing for your children and then just giving them the absolute best opportunities you can for them to succeed in life. Mm-hmm, for sure. Sounds fairly simple, but yeah, like you said, there's 20 years of work backfilling that to, to give them those opportunities exactly exactly and more than 20 actually nowadays so how can or how should 
a mom make peace with the idea that she can't be super mom all the time and that it's okay? <laughs> um, first of all, every mother on this earth will relate to what I'm going to uh, say. And that is we would never make peace with the fact. <laughs> we all want to be super moms and we all want to be the best moms to our kids. So um, we all want to be uh, super moms. It's, you know, it's the times when, you know, the 2 a.m. Uh, moms out there will relate. The 2 a.m. Uh, slide down the uh, bedroom or the hallway uh, wall crying and drained totally uh, because every child in the house is throwing up and uh, you don't have any bed linens left or towels and uh, hubby's out of town working and you know it's you just throw up your you throw your hands up in the air and you concede Um, you concede to the fact that okay I'm done I can't do this by myself Uh, but it's never peaceful (laughs) there's never a peaceful uh, moment about that You spent 11 years of your life as a constable in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Did you always aspire to be a member of the RCMP or did life take you that direction unexpectedly? I knew from the time I was six years old that I was going to be a police officer. I didn't know for sure it was going to be with the RCMP, um, but I knew that I would be policing at some point in my life. Uh, My cousins, both my cousins in England uh, were Bobbies. And my uh, dad also worked for the RCMP. So I guess it was inevitable. Maybe there was a bit of influence there. It was in the blood. Yeah. The I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and how old were your kids when you joined the RCMP? Oh, gosh. They were, uh, they were all teenagers when I joined uh, the RCMP. Uh, I was the oldest one in my troop at 38. Two events in your career were particularly traumatic for you. One was a crash and the other was an incident in which you were assaulted. Are you comfortable discussing them even briefly and their effects on you? Yes, I am now. Yeah, that, that, that's coming full circle is uh, being able to talk about the events that shape me into, you know, who I am today. Um, I just want to mention something, first of all. Um, my, what, when I think about uh, the incidents, uh, both of them occurred in, um, in Williams Lake when I was posted there. And at that time, uh, it was touted through not just the RCMP, but other police agencies in Canada to be one of the roughest and toughest uh, places to police. Um, you know, there were gang shootings, you know, machetes, um, you know, violent uh, assaults, extreme violence and a hatred for police um, from many uh, people um, that we faced. And it wasn't, you know, an oh, occasional occurrence. It was every shift. And uh, so even before we went uh, on to shift, uh, we were heightened and we knew uh, what we were, you had to be ready, you had to be on guard. Um, So I'll talk about the incident um, about when I was assaulted. Um, I'll I'll keep a long story short. I I was uh, uh, attempting to effect a traffic uh, stop with an old station wagon and uh, it had, it was going all over the road, up on the curb and the sidewalk and um, I couldn't even see into the back of it. It was just piled high of suitcases and, and um, you know, household items. And so I couldn't even see who was driving. When I finally uh, got the driver to stop, um, 
I could tell right away when I approached uh, that the male was extremely agitated. And so right away, um, you know, my police mind went straight to, okay, he's either really hopped up on narcotics or, you know, he's having a mental health crisis. Um when he found out there was, he had no insurance, he had no license to drive, anything like that. And when I had informed him that he wasn't able to drive the rest of the day, um, what I didn't know at the time was, I, I soon found out after, uh, that he had nothing to lose. And um, he was schizophrenic and off his meds and everything he ever owned um, was in that car. And so he felt at the time in his crisis that I was taking his whole life from him. And I can tell you it was a matter of seconds um, before he was out of that vehicle. And, oh, yeah, calling for help was pretty quick um, in that uh, in that incident. We were, you know, we were rolling around on that ground, punching, kicking, everything just to try and effect an arrest. And thank goodness my supervisor had come. And, uh, yeah, we ended up getting handcuffed. Um and, uh, and down to the station he went. And I was so hopped up on adrenaline, I have to tell you, that I felt no injury whatsoever. But it wasn't until, I think it was about half an hour in, like, into cells that my supervisor said, are you okay? Like, you're holding your mouth, you know, weird. And he goes, you better get to the dentist. I could feel grit in my teeth. And I ended up having um, my jaw broken in three places. So once here, down here, and on this side here. So I needed surgery and uh, I ended up, you know, getting my mouth wire shut for three months. And the reason why I kind of wanted to bring up just that little bit of the background, it has some irony in it uh, because I didn't, I still don't necessarily, I can relate to this fellow. Um, you know, I can relate to, I made peace with the fact that, you know, he was off his medication. He had mental health crisis, you know, so that incident um, I, I've never had an issue with, I, I resolved that. I talked to him after he ended up getting jail time. And when he was released, we talked, he apologized. It was fine, but what was not fine. And what happened to me was actually after the surgery, when I was wired shut. And that's the actual traumatic part for me. And I, I know it's hard to understand, uh, you know, if you're not me, but, um, the nights of, um, you know, it finally it hitting me, I can't open my mouth and, you know, feeling like I was starving to death, um, feeling nauseous all the time, throwing up in my mouth, swallowing it back down, but not being able to get rid of it. Uh, it caused something, something, did, something clicked in my head and anxiety went to like OCD. I had wire cutters. Like I, I, I recall had like laying on my back at night having wire cutters, not just one pair, but several lined up beside my head and just practicing to cut the wires because, you know, what happened? I don't want to die. And, um, and just making sure, like it got so bad, like every night it would be, I, I would have trouble sleeping. And when I did sleep, it was only out of pure exhaustion and, um, just from that fear of not getting to those wires in time and making sure that my husband was well-trained and him knowing that those cutters are there. So if I can't do it, you got to do it. And uh, yeah, it weighed on me. Oh, it weighed on me. 
and the starvation, the starvation part of it, the liquid diet. I was already, you know, thin and I just was went into starvation mode. Um, I never asked for help. Everyone, I told everyone I was fine. Um, of course, um, especially workmates, peers, uh, bosses. I, I'm all good, you know. I'm top cop. I'm I'm tough. I'm one of the boys. And and uh, what was really happening is I was dying inside, and I had so much trauma and so much uh, negative energy. So much focus was on me possibly dying and me trying not to die um, that I lost myself completely. I, I don't remember actually a lot of that time. Um, I do remember the day I got my wires off and the decision to what, like take the wires off, um, you know, happened a couple of weeks early. And, be, and the reason for that is I actually was in starvation mode. And uh, we, I recall talking to my GP about, feeding methods and tubes and what was going to happen if I, if I couldn't eat, if I didn't start eating. And so the decision was made to take the wires off. And um, I thought at that point, hunky dory, all is good. And the first thing I thought about was eating a cheeseburger. Like I needed to eat this cheeseburger and piece it all apart. And I did, I could only open my mouth maybe an inch still because I, you know, from being wired shut, the jaw was so stiff. And I, forced that cheeseburger down and I and what happened is I started um you know I had set in my mind I'm starving I'm starving I'm starving and uh I was diagnosed with refeeding syndrome within a couple of months I was just throwing up everything my body couldn't take what I wanted to what my mind was telling it it had to eat so every time food hit my stomach up it would come and that turned into full 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 bulimia um you know, for years, which was left untreated. Um, you know, the only the only person that had any inkling of, you know, anything going on was my husband. And I, of course, remember the day that I made him promise, do not say a word to anyone. Yeah, and what a weight, what a weight as a husband that must have carried. Like I think back now and I was like, wow, that's so unfair. But you know, that's where I was in at the time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I know it, uh, it's not easy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Things aren't easy, but it's necessary. It's necessary, you know, to share uh, events and stories so that other people who have gone through traumatic events can relate and say, hey, you know what? I'm not alone. Or that's weird. Like, how did that happen? Ah, well, she doesn't really know how it happened, but she snapped, you know, and look at her now. She's okay. So um, the... The other incident, um, you know, all I'll really say about it, um, you know, because it doesn't need to be a long drawn out story, is that it was a, a major crash on a very busy highway. And it just compounded, evolved uh, into a multi vehicle uh, crash. And um, yeah, lots of other vehicles became involved. It was a complete nightmare. Um, yeah, today, you know, to this day, I still have thoughts, not reoccurring, like intrusive thoughts, but I still think about it. And, um, you know, I still sometimes at night can smell burnt flesh. I can still smell engine oil. Um, but now, uh, you know, it was a lot different um, back then, um, you know, when it woke me up and I'd be screaming in the night. 
um, you know, it's a lot different now. Um, it was just happening at that time and there was nothing I could do about it. And I felt like as a supervisor, I was supervising at that time that I totally lost control of that whole situation. And I couldn't save anyone. And so I think it was that, that, you know, stuck with me. Um, but for years afterwards, I replayed nightly over and over and over that scene and it got bigger and more enhanced and my part in it became absolutely uh, slow motion. And I even remember my thoughts and uh, yeah, it wasn't until years later, um, you know, through, through therapy uh, and EMDR actually to be uh, specific that uh, I got the help I needed in dealing with that. And EMDR is something you're hearing more and more about. I've had a few other guests on here talking about it. Um, so congratulations to you for that. Um, you know, my listeners have, have learned and heard from me that, you know, I was at Ground Zero 9-11 mm-hmm. and have worked almost my entire career within blocks of Ground Zero. And it took me 17 years to go back. Mm-hmm. What are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and what did you experience? Oh my goodness, there are so many. Um, and many of us don't experience the same ones. They're all, they're all different and they're unique to us all. Um, you know, the nightmares, the sweats, uh, recurring dreams, um, isolation, avoiding people, things, places. Um, oh goodness, the emotions, uh, anger, um, crying for no reason or reasons that are not in a normal situation. Um, even, you know, even shopping, uh, shopping gets out of control. Um, even, even out of control shopping is a behavior. Um, and another one, self-harm, uh, fun fact. One thing I learned during, uh, therapy, and I know that sounded like very light Mary, but it's not, it's just, you know, black humor, I guess. Um, being tattooed, getting inked, um, uh, getting pierced uh, during uh, times of reflection and healing from traumatic experiences, uh, the medical world views that as self-harm. And I did not realize that I'm covered. I'm inked. I'm inked. Um, And you'll notice that a lot of first responders, many first responders are And uh, it was very interesting to me to learn that, you know, uh, in the medical field, like that would be self-harm. And yeah, I think back, yeah, I I got a whole lot of ink when I was going through uh, what I was at the time. So who knows? It's just just something I wanted to to add in. Oh, that's interesting because I always view the tattoos, whether it be military or first responders, police, fire, as just sort of their, their badge of honor. Mm. Uh, and, and that makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for me, um, oh, goodness. At first, it was just like no sleep. And then the sweats and waking up, uh, crying. And, um, you know, I was just so afraid that I was going to choke to death. And, um, you know, I just remembered I would, it, I would replay things over and over and over and over and over to every last detail. Um, but there would always be something added in. So it was almost like I was remembering another detail or maybe it wasn't even a detail that even happened that my mind was putting in there out of fear. That happened a few times. And um, 
Oh, man, just breaking out into full body sweats, isolating myself from, um, you know, isolating myself from my peers, from my family, only keeping in touch with my family as needed. And we lived, uh, you know, seven and a half, eight hours from our closest child. So it was easy for me to pretend. Um, but it got to the point, um, you know, I stopped attending events, um, even with very close friends. And I was even afraid uh, to leave the house. Um, actually, I don't want to say afraid. For some reason, I wasn't able to leave the house uh, to walk across the street to the mailbox unless it was like 11 o'clock at night and nobody was around. Uh, things like that. Um, the avoidance of firearms, which I grew up out in the boonies. My dad was an outdoorsman. Uh, we we were shooting from the time we were young. So, um you know, the avoidance of that, um, driving carelessly, that was a huge thing for me. You know, I remember being out on the open road in the summertime and not caring how fast I was going. And I would think, yeah, if I crashed, oh, well, you know, just being totally reckless and, um, you know, always having that feeling of not being good enough, um, not ever having anyone be able to stand behind me. I still... Um, there's still times, even when my husband will come stand behind me on the couch, I'm uncomfortable, but I work through it now. But I, I tell you, it sure, I sure dealt with a lot of that. And then, you know, those things go right into, I started having suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. We've been talking to retired Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer Kim Tent. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? 
Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Kimberly Tent, a former Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable who is the author of a series of books, Parts of Me, Scattered Little Parts, and Some of Parts, about post-traumatic stress and other mental health challenges. And Kim, apologies again to our listeners for that early break. Many of you heard my dog losing his mind at either the UPS guy or uh, the squirrel that likes to taunt him. But as you were talking about what you were going through and how you were kind of reacclimating to the, the new world that you saw, I got the impression that your philosophy of putting others first and yourself last as a mom carried over to your time with the RCMP as you helped others cope with their own post-traumatic stress. Did you focus on others or help your own mental health issues? Oh, absolutely uh, focused on others. Um, I wanted to be the best supervisor um, out there. I think, you know, looking back, it provided me um, a vessel to focus on outside of myself. And um, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure it didn't help uh, me end up helping me in the end, um, but it felt good at the time. And as a constable, you tackled most problems head on, but you avoided dealing with your PTS. Why did you avoid that? Oh, goodness. Well, it would make me not perfect. For one, I, I was a perfectionist. Um, I, I try not to be uh, these days. <laughs> um, but it took me a long time to become a Mountie, uh, to be the police officer that I worked so hard uh, to be. And by dealing with my PTS would mean that I would have to be open to others knowing uh, what I was dealing with. And then I wouldn't be one of the boys. I wouldn't, uh, I'd have to give up that, you know, rough and tough, you know, uh, aspect of policing in my mind that um, have made me inferior. In your experience dealing with others, is avoidance a common response to post-traumatic stress? Absolutely. I could teach avoidance 101. <laughs> For sure. I, I, I'm pretty sure I could uh, teach that uh, university class. Um, the stigma to it is real. Uh, no one wants to feel uh, that they're less than or they're not capable, especially out on the, on the job. Let's talk about your books. The first book, Parts of Me. Mm-hmm. That, didn't out, that didn't start as a book, did it? Sorry, what was that? The first book, Parts of Me, did not start out as a book, correct? Oh, gosh, nowhere near. I wrote pieces every day. I wrote daily. I journaled um, as a part of my own healing uh, through what I was going through at the time, through that darkness. 
um, it wasn't until years later that uh, a peer um, at work asked me, how did you know when you had PTS? Like, what, what did you feel and what were your symptoms? And I was like, oh, I can tell exactly how I was feeling. And I gave her, you know, a couple of things that I'd written. She's like, oh, my gosh. And I said, you know, it's better to be bred than it is, you know, for me to tell you. And that's how it all started. I thought, you know what? I've had like all these different, you know, um, stages. I like to think of them as stages of healing. And yeah, it, it was blatantly, you could see each one. So I thought, why not put it in to help other first responders? And did that writing help you move from stage to stage or was it simply a record of your ups and downs? I don't think it like helped me move from stage to stage. I think that journaling itself helped me get through each day and each stage. Um, and I didn't know there were stages at the time. It's just looking back now, I'm like, oh, there were clear stages. And um, yeah, I think at the time um, it was a, a, that in combination of different therapies, um, you know, were what helped me move on from stage to stage. And we've had a lot of guests on the show who've gone through um, post-traumatic stress and mental health challenges. And many of them have talked about journaling like you were doing here. Do you recommend journaling for everyone? Uh, I'm a writer. Of course. It's your, I, rec- I recommend journaling from everybody on this earth. Like I had my first journal when I was seven and I never looked back. Um, definitely recommend. It's freeing. It's um well, you and I both know, we have things that we do not tell anyone, even our closest, like our spouses, like our closest friends. Uh, only we know about our truth. And I'm all about the truth. And so if you can get your truth on paper without, you know, thinking that anyone is going to read it, you do what you want with it after, burn it, you know, throw it in the trash or whatever. But it's out there and it gets it outside of um, yourself. And I just feel like it's good for the soul. Journaling is fabulous. You know, and I finally took uh, people's advice from telling me to journal. You know, I mentioned before about my post-traumatic stress at, at Ground Zero. And earlier this year, I published my first book. And, and the first chapter is pretty much the minute-by-minute minute, uh, accounting of my 9-11 day. Mm-hmm. And just living through all that, and to your point, putting it down. You know, I did it just to, to write it. Didn't think there would be a hardcover on it. Right. Uh, so I also recommend it to everybody out there just for... Yeah, just for your own personal well-being. Getting it all out. Your second book is quite different than your first. The difference being a shift from poetic to more traditional narrative. Why the difference? Well, I like to well, I like to think that like books two and three um, are equally poetic. Uh, I just believe that they're different stages. Uh, they were at different stages. Um, there's a different, I think there's a definite difference d- between each piece that I wrote, but I think it all depended on how I was feeling in that moment and where I was at uh, when I wrote them. So not necessarily. I like to think they're all poetic. But I also think that, you know, looking back now on each of those books, that there was a difference in self-confidence and that grew. That was that was huge. Yeah, that grew from book to book. And you wrote that you had unrealistic self-expectations when you were a constable. What were those expectations and why were they so unrealistic? <laughs> well, first of all, I had to be perfect. 
I've said that a few times now. I wanted, uh, I wanted nothing less and I demanded nothing less of myself out there. Um, but I also didn't want that for myself. My expectations were that my watchmates, um, you know, my detachment, my bosses, my supervisors, even my husband, who is also a member of the RCMP, and he, he worked on a unit and it wasn't even in our jurisdiction. But when I helped their unit out, my expectations were, you know, I had to do the very best job that anyone has ever done on this file. Um, and, um, you know, you, you know, looking back, you need backup. I'm the first one there. You, you know, you need breakfast after our last night shift. I'll make the best breakfast. Breakfast. Um, you know, you can't, you, you couldn't go to a sudden death. I'll go, you know, I've seen everything. So it got to that point where, you know, I had time for everything. I had time to start new committees. I had, um, oh, this one time I had uh, three broken toes on my right foot. And uh, nobody knew except my GP and my husband. And uh, I, I worked like that. I worked like that. Uh, I had them all taped up and in my boot. And I worked like that. Nobody knew a thing because if somebody knew, then I'd have to be off work. And to me, that wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. Um, nobody demanded that of me. Like I, my bosses didn't demand me to be perfect. Um, I'm sure that they just wanted me to be, you know, and do my best that I could that shift. But I demanded that um, of myself and I had something to prove um, in the end. And it wasn't to anybody else, but it was to myself. I guess finally talking about expectations, how do your expectations of the RCMP as an institution match up with your reality? Um, well, first of all, I want to be clear about something. So before and after I was institutionalized, I, for PTS and eating disorder, I was very angry uh, at the RCMP as a whole. Um, I felt let down. I felt um, betrayed. I forgot, forgotten about. Um, I felt everything was their fault um, at the time. And I I don't want to say hatred because it's such a, but I, there was this, I despised the RCMP for letting me fall through the cracks and forgetting about me. And, um, you know, it took me years of processing healing to realize that they played a huge part in my PTS symptoms worsening by not calling me and not helping me for 11 weeks. Um, but they didn't cause my PTS. And, um, you know, they didn't help me out in the time frame I needed. Um, but at the time, thinking back, I feel like I felt they owed me something. They owed it to me. And I wasn't putting in the work myself. Um, and I think that was a, a huge hindrance. Um, you know, how, how could it not be? I gave them everything. Um, and I, when I say that, I mean it. I gave them, I loved my job and the RCMP more than I loved myself. And that's a huge statement. And I say it all, all the time. It's true. I gave too much of myself away. I breathed it. I ate it. I slept it. I became my job. It was my identity. And, um, and I don't have blame for any, any, uh, there's no blame in, in my PTS. And I don't, I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> we hear so often when people are in crisis that they have to hit rock bottom before they seek help. 
Now, I don't believe that's always the case. What was your turning point and your struggle with post-traumatic stress? Oh, goodness. Well, you're going to find out that one in book three, because I write a lot about it in book three. Um, you know, I, I talk about um, the moment I met a homeless man and visited with a homeless man um, back east when I was in treatment uh, there. And I learned his entire life story and, you know, through it all. And he was homeless and just his outlook on life. Um, it inspired me and uh, caused me to look at only truth. And those were his words. What's the, what's your truth? What's the truth? And I find myself, uh, it changed everything for me. I find myself saying that a lot to people. The first responders aren't the only people who struggle with anxiety or stress or other mental wellness challenges. And your books aren't just for first responders, are they? No, gosh, no, not at all. Um, well, first of all, post-traumatic stress uh, doesn't discriminate. Um, it affects anyone and everyone who has been, not everyone, but anyone who has been through a post-traumatic, um, you know, a traumatic incident at all. Uh, it can affect anyone. Um, you know, I, I want to bring something up. Um, and that is definitely my part series is not just for first responders. It's for, from anyone struggling from the effects of PTSD, as well as um, family members you know, trying to figure out, you know, what is my spouse, partner, husband, father, mother thinking, and how can I help? Um, it becomes clear. Um, but I think, I mean, you know, as far as um, first responders, um, I think just because a lot of the pieces are written from experiences on the job, that um, they may be able to relate uh, to that more. You've written that a life as a police officer can be lonely. I think a lot of people think of the police as sticking together and being very close-knit society. Why is life as a police officer so lonely? Oh, wow, you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, because uh, police officers, uh, we, we do stick together. And uh, I don't have to know you. I don't have to have ever met you. But if you have been a police officer or are a police officer, um, I call you my brother. I call you my sister. And uh, that's just because we can relate to each other and we relate to the job. Um, I feel that, you know, the loneliness part, especially for me, came with still, even in that brotherhood or sisterhood, still putting on that facade that everything is good, everything is okay. You know, even during briefings, you know, we debrief after, you know, I'd make sure as a supervisor, we debriefed. And not once do I ever remember, you know, you know, saying exactly how I was feeling. I could be trembling inside, but oh no, yeah, that's good, you know. And I don't ever remember, like, you know, showing weakness in in any way. You know, we don't want to be kicked out of the brotherhood. We want to go to the barbecue on Saturday, right? And you know, sometimes that doesn't happen anymore. If if oh he's having problems or she's having problems, and I didn't want that to happen to me. I know it's always dangerous to generalize, but younger officers would seem to be stronger and more physically able to handle an assault than an officer in his or her 40s or 50s. At the same time, the younger officers haven't seen as many situations and know how to process them as well. Does post-traumatic stress from an incident such as an assault affect others differently based on their age? Hmm. Yes, it's dangerous to generalize. <laughs> but I will, I will comment. And I think on that from my own experience. Uh, no, 
I, I don't think that uh, age uh, differentiates uh, your training as long as you stay healthy and fit uh, in the course of your duties and over the years. Um, age has nothing to do with it. Uh, in 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 fact, I think that um, you know age and experience in policing, especially. Um, you know, create smarts and experience that, um, you know, reactions um, and debriefing um, are, you know, they become paramount. The older we get and the more experience we have, you know, it's, it, you know, there's more of a, of a plus that way. But I mean, as far as, you know, age, nah, I, I don't think so. Age is just a number, right? Sure. Problem <laughs> <laughs> is mine keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> the Institutes of Health report that four out of five first responders experience traumatic events on the job. So obviously, it's no surprise that puts first responders at high risk of developing post-traumatic stress as a work-related injury or condition. And there's my dog again. <laughs> Why is it that 50% apparently do not experience PTS while 30% do? Or are the numbers just wrong? Oh, man. Uh, first of all, I'm not an expert in statistics, and uh, I don't dabble in them. And uh, there's a there's I mean, there's reasons why, but I can tell you um, that I do believe um, that the number of uh, police officers uh, who are recorded to have a suffering from PTS is much higher uh, than the recordings. And I and I call it because it's because of the I'm fine stigma. Um you know, two, and you know, two officers can go to a major police incident and one walks away smiling, right? And the other one, his partner or her partner um, suffers. And then, you know, for days, weeks, um, they're yelling at their kids, they're drinking too much, they're, you know, but every shift, he or she goes into work and their partner is fine. Life is good. Oh yeah. It's not bugging me. So there's that pressure and that instinct that we, you know, we tell ourselves, well, we should be okay too. And, um, you know, unfortunately in some circumstances, um, you know, a couple months later, um, they put their gun to their head and we're, we're left asking why. And, it just goes to show that like no two people respond the same way to a traumatic incident. And, you know, that's just what I've experienced and uh, it happens. It happens daily. You know, before you were talking about the, one of your incidents with the, the man who was schizophrenic, I saw a news story last night on a couple of police officers in Texas where they pulled somebody over and the passenger would not put his hands up on the dashboard. And then all of a sudden you could see from the body cam, him reaching and pulling his gun out. And then the officer was forced to shoot him dead on the spot. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think about it or realize, but to say that, you know, approaching a car is the most common thing a police officer does and also the most dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so now I think about that officer just took someone's life. Yes, that's his job. But then how do you process that, you know, knowing or just maybe assuming that the person in the car could be a husband, a father, a brother, et cetera. And just, I just couldn't fathom that, but at the very least, I just want to thank you and, and your brothers and sisters for your service and your sacrifice. I just want to put that out there. Well, thank you. And I'm sure everybody, every every responder right now thanks you as well. So in addition to your books, how do you help others experience post-traumatic stress and how can people get in touch with you? Oh, goodness. Well, I, first of all, 
there's many ways that I, I help first responders and veterans, by the way, I have to add. Um, I help fund programs, uh, PTSD programs, um, you know, donations. Um, also, an important uh, aspect of what I do is uh, to advocate. I, I'm an advocate uh, for first responders and, and PTSD, uh, PTSI, as we like to say now. And, um, you know, getting them into programs, even if they're agencies, it doesn't matter what agency, you know, fire, police, ambulance, dispatchers, whoever, these agencies, if they don't recognize the program that is best suited, um, you know, for the person, um, and they cannot afford uh, the cost to go, that's where I come in. That's where, that's where this series (laughs) comes in. And um, the proceeds from it go, you know, even to groceries, sometimes, you know, we have veterans that can't feed themselves. And or, you know, certain incidences, I will reach out. And when I feel led, um, I'll add and um, get them there. I even at one point had um, donated a a, we had a veteran uh, back east who uh, needed a service dog badly and there was a three-year wait and I know because I waited three and a half years uh, uh, for Lily and um, uh, I donated a service dog um, to that veteran and um, it was rewarding very very rewarding and people can reach me um, just so everyone knows people can reach me at kimtent3 at hotmail.com and uh, you can also reach me through uh, my uh, part series website, and it's www.apothicentertainmentbooks.com. And then, of course, on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, I'm easy to find and reach out to me there if you want to chat or you want to talk about some struggles with, you know, your first responder in your family or yourself. And, uh, yeah. So I want to go back to something you mentioned a moment ago, PTSI. So several years ago, I was in an event that had a Medal of Honor recipient talking about PTSD. Mm-hmm. And he said, but you have to drop the D, it's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. And so I've been very careful ever since then uh, in referring to it as post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. What's the I and why the I? So PTSI is more uh, of an injury. So the I is for injury instead of a disorder. Um, I think that, you know, especially coming from a, a first responder, who doesn't like to be labeled that label of having a disorder was just, you know, something that we, we brought on ourselves. Whereas PTSI and talking about an injury is something that actually happened to us. And it was not something that we brought on ourselves. It would, you know, it was not preventable at that time for us. Thank you for clarifying that. And I'm going to, from now on refer to as PTSI. That's a huge, huge shift in the mindset because we know, at least those who engage with first responders, there's a stigma associated with having something, air quote, wrong, being a police officer, a firefighter, et cetera. You're going to lose your, your gun, your promotion, your security clearance, your benefits. And that just eats away at, inside day after day, year after year. And so having people talk about it like yourself out there gives so many others like you hope and opportunity. And so just thank you for being so raw and honest with us today. Absolutely. I, I can't imagine, uh, I mean, I can't imagine because there was a point in time where I wasn't able and not at the point where I was able to talk about uh, what had happened to me. And uh, believe me, the, the, uh, my story doesn't end there and didn't, like it may have started at that point, but uh, there's so much that, it, you know, happened uh, in between and it was compounded for me. And, um, you know, for some people it can be 
uh, a one incident, uh, but in uh, policing and law enforcement, uh, you know, uh, compound, uh, you know, complex PTSD is is definitely prevalent. So we have just a few minutes left. Yeah. Take us to the close with your advice on how to look after and protect our own well-being and become more empowered. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. So first of all, oh, I've got so much to say in three minutes. Okay. So first of all, just remember that no one is perfect and you are not perfect and I'm not perfect. So we need to give ourselves some grace. So please give yourself some grace and um, also um, write a list. This is, this is important. And this is coming from the writer, I know, but um, write a self, yourself a list of things that you will commit to, um, you know, fulfilling daily. Um, provoking things that provoke good thoughts, make you feel good, calm your anxieties, and it'll be different for everyone. Um, I love my list. I, I personally love my list. And at first, it's a commitment. But you know, if you keep doing it day after day after day, I don't, I don't necessarily look at my list anymore. I know what's on there. And at the end of the day, I, you know, be, hey, you know what, I never phoned a friend today. So I'll reach out and call a friend and listen to how their day was. Um, yeah, and that's something else, by the way, that uh, everybody can read at the end of book three, which um, ironically uh, releases this week. So I'm excited about that as well. And I have my list right here. Do we have just a little bit of time? About 90 seconds. Okay, so I call it my daily, essential daily 10. Um, wake up grateful and thankful and say so, speak it out loud, uh, speak up and claim what is meant to be mine in this world, um, rise and shine, appreciate cuddles with my fur babies, um, prayers and stretch and always meditation and medication. <laughs> so it's just a good way to, to, for me to stay, like make sure that I'm taking my medication. Um, always um, enjoy a mug of tea and read to learn. Uh, get outside. I always get outside for 30 minutes and have fun. Go for walks, do fun things with friends. Um, also cooking, use a skill. It doesn't have to be cooking, but any skill. Uh, connect with a family member or friend. Um, write a letter um, or mail to someone across the miles. And then finally, work hard with heart and write hard with passion. And I do everything with passion and love. Kimberly mm-hmm. Tent, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. We'll have to sometime. Absolutely. I want to apologize for my dog, Zeke. We're a few days before Christmas and Santa's elves from Amazon and UPS came here a couple of times. So apologies for interrupting your story. No problem at all. I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.